I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go of strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher, movie aficionado, and builder of beautiful things in Greeley, Colorado. And with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. You read any good books lately? Uh, a couple. Why don't you tell me about these books we'll that see. were on your shelf? We'll see. We're uh, I, I'm I'm really getting into these uh this this series that's coming out that's called This series? is so cheesy. I can't even I can't even <laughs> be serious about <laughs> cheesy. I'm promoting. really getting into this series. <laughs> Dear listener, we are beginning the first of nine interviews with Enneagram scholars who have just released books through a series by InterVarsity Press called Enneagram Daily Reflections. And our first interview is with one of our friends, the great Sean Palmer is with us. Howdy. Sean. How you doing? Doing well. Enjoying my different Good. nuggets in the playoffs right now. They by the are time in the playoffs. The, by the time this is released... Everyone who is listening will know that the Nuggets won this thing, and it was just the Cinderella story of the year in a in a year that was so terrible. Yeah, that is something that people might know um, <laughs> once this is released, or they might not. One of my good friends on our on our staff is from Denver, and he's a huge Nugget fan, and. I told him when they were down 3-1 to the Clippers, like, 1-2-3 Cancun. Y'all guys just pack it up, get ready to go. And I don't think for the rest of my life that he will let me forget it. Um, but, man, they have been playing nearly magical basketball. So fun to watch. Magical. And, and I, you know, I think Joker is out there giving every doughy white guy, you know, just... Um, just like just hoop dreams that that what they what they for what they thought was possible wasn't possible might actually be. So, God bless them. Sean is for those of you who did not hear our exceptional deep dive into the Last Dance earlier this summer. Uh, Sean is a coach. He's a writer. He's a speaker in Houston, Texas. He's a speaking pastor. He is an exceptional social critic. If you follow him on the Twitter and. Man, you get the top spot, I think, for me in terms of my friends who are basketball aficionados. I think you know more than all the other folks. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Jeff, because I have actually been asked a lot lately about basketball things and like on basketball podcasts. And, all, and I'm just at I'm just at home like I am a fan. My wife and I have been Spurs fans forever. We're deep Spurs fans. I watch. Uh, but I think just because I'm talking about it a lot, because it keeps me from talking about religion and politics in public. So when I want to tweet something or Facebook something, it's usually about basketball. So you're going to start that uh, NBA side hustle. Uh, it's going to replace all your other work. 
NBA yeah. commentator. Yeah, so um, that's probably doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a basketball podcast one day, but nothing more than that, which it will be called The Idiot's Take on Basketball. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing you're not an idiot on is apparently the Enneagram, and you're part of this book series. Uh, just big overview. Tell me about the, tell us about the book series. Yeah, so um, as you guys know, obviously, lots of interest in the Enneagram, and people are finding it incredibly helpful for their own personal, relational, spiritual development. And so the good people at IVP thought this would be the perfect kind of content to deliver to people in the form of a 40-day daily reader geared toward every person's individual Enneagram number. So in the series, there's going to be 40 days of being a three and 40 days of being a two, which my friend Hunter Mosley, uh, Hunter Mobley is writing. Um, so all nine numbers spend 40 days with someone who really is in touch with their number, in touch with what they do in integration and disintegration, stress and security, knows themselves inside of their number. And it just so happens that mine and Hunter's will be the first in the series to be released. And that will be this upcoming October, but over the next year, um, there'll be a 40-day reader for every Enneagram number, and I think it's going to be a tremendous gift for a lot of people. I do as well. Um, we are going to be doing interviews with all of the nine, uh, the nine authors of these books. We're going to be calling this series Experts, and I'm super excited for these interviews because I think they will be a standard bearer and reference uh, for many of us for a long time. I'm super excited to come back to these in the future. It is, in my mind, it's one thing to explore your own number in quiet places. It's another to dialogue through your perspective with others who do not have that perspective but are seeking to understand that perspective from an informed vantage point. And so that's what TJ and I are going to hope to do is not only listen to the language from our friends who are ones, twos, and threes who have written these books, but to elevate our questions about their types and and get some get some gold out of that. So, yeah. you got any thoughts on these, TJ? Well, um, we talked about this a bit with Suzanne uh, in a series interview with her, but um, I'm I'm really excited about the prospect of having wisdom from people who have studied the Enneagram and are speaking from each of their types. Yep. Like I don't I don't I don't know that we have a good comprehensive material f- teaching the Enneagram from each of the nine numbers. Uh, and this is the in in my from what I can tell this is the first series like that that's going to be done. And I'm I'm just really excited to have that information from the perspective of each type. So, Bang. well, let's let's get into this. Right. Sean, you are an Enneagram three. I bet you could throw down the basics of an Enneagram three for us. Well, sure. The Enneagram three is what is known as the achiever or the performer, depending on which school that you come out of. Um, and the chief sin of Enneagram 3s is deceit. And so what we mean by deceit isn't that Enneagram 3s are liars, uh, though I'm sure that we are, but it's a way of kind of interpreting and shading the world in a particular way that molds itself to the expectations and the contours of the people or the person around them. So there's a lot of concern for Enneagram 3s around image, about success, about appearing successful. And those are two different things. 
uh, success and appearing successful that I think need to be spoken about a good bit. Um, there's a lot for threes about um, about achievement. We are in uh, the feeling triad, uh, which means certain things for us, that we do encounter the world, approach the world, feeling what's happening in the room with those around us, but we are also aggressive stance people, which means that we are feeling repressed. And so even though we take in the world through feelings, we don't use those feelings to move forward in the world. And there's some reasons that we do that. And of course, um, when you talk about Enneagram threes, you have to be forthright in the fact that like we do live in America, which has a lot of cultural three pressure. Um, and I love what TJ said about hearing from each individual number about their number, because if you go, especially to like introductory workshops, um, whatever number the person is who's presenting that workshop tends to shade their uh, teaching around their number. Right. So if it's if it's a two, you hear a lot about twos. And if it's an eight, you hear a lot about eights. And a matter of fact, I was at a workshop was being led by an eight. And not only did this presenter spend most of their time talking about eights, but helping people understand eights, so like almost trying to say why you should have sympathy for us. And, um, <laughs> and so it, and it, it wouldn't matter, right? No matter however you come out facing the world, um, that's how you would present it because you would want people to um, understand you. And, and so it's like I um, tell people all the time, the Enneagram for me, and I feel like I don't know that I would call myself an expert as you have titled these uh, this series of conversations. <laughs> but I, I would say this. I've, I've, I've studied enough. I've read enough. I've talked to enough people. I've interviewed enough people to be able to say some of some things about the Enneagram on my own without saying so-and-so says and so-and-so says. So this is one of the things that I say on my own. And don't believe A.J. Sherrill if he tells you that he told it to me first and I'm stealing from <laughs> I, th- I think that when we name these, uh, you know, kind of novices and not experts, it's not going to sell as well. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Ooh. Once but you so, write a so, book so, on a topic, I bet you know something worth diving you, into. You, you have to. And, and so I would say this about the Enneagram. This is kind of what I was driving toward, is that uh, the Enneagram isn't a thing on its own that lives out in the universe. The Enneagram is a strategy. Our number is a strategy to be loved. Mm. It's the strategy that we take on in order to be loved. Is that your, is that the big idea for you? It is when I'm thinking, thinking about the whole typology. Yeah. Um, Cause it's not a personality because personalities are pretty um, flimsy things to begin with. Um, it's not your essence. It's just at some point, usually pretty young in life, given your family system, your context, your religious or non-religious upbringing, um, you decided, we all decided that this strategy worked to get us what we needed, right? Mm -hmm. So my youngest daughter, we think, is a seven. And so, you know, sevens have this persistent question about like having their needs met, right? And my wife is like, when did this child not have her needs met? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I look back and I said, well, you know, when she was two, we had a big move from one part of the country to the other. And it was stressful for us for about three years. Mm -hmm. And as much attention that we gave her, we were both not in a very good place emotionally. And that's when she decided that if she were going to have to have her needs met, 
uh, then she was going to have to do it herself. And she looked around at all of the places that should be mooring for people. And they weren't mooring for her parents and they weren't mooring for her. And so we were kind of unmoored people at the time of family system. And so she decided this is how you get the attention, love, adoration that we all crave. And so it's not like we didn't take care of her because they have always been taken care of. Um, but that we come into the world pretty savvy beings emotionally in terms of what we need and what we crave. Mm. And we figure out a way to get them. And you just do that long enough, that becomes a personality. But a personality for me is much closer to false self than it is to essence. Mm. We consistently go back and forth on nature nurture here. I don't know if TJ has recent thoughts on this. My intuitions are all over the place, and I really want some somebody who does brain chemistry to come in and give us give us some feedback here. Um, but do you, what, what, what do you think on that, Teach? Uh, well, I, I still land pretty pretty much in the same place I always have. I think it's a little bit of both, and um, I like this idea that she developed this at a time when the world around her wasn't providing what she thought she needed. And so she sort of built a system for herself. And, and um, it, it's my opinion that, that she would have been predisposed in a direction and then things happened that sort of solidified her into figuring that out. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As uh, you, you and I, I don't know where Jeff is on this, but you and I are tracking the same place. Like sure. you would, if you'd ask my older daughter about her little sister, she would say she came out loud and uh -huh. she kept being loud. Sure. She's just a big personality. Yeah. So some of that was just, uh, and we tell people this about our children all the time when they praise our children and trying to praise us. Like, no, a lot of that was just downloaded when we got them. Sure. So, yeah. you know, I would looking back on my life, there is no way that I could have not been a three. Given my family system, given who my parents were, who my older brother was, um, given what my natural gifts were, if you had to guess adding up the context of my the contents of my life, uh, you would have you would have pulled a three out of that hat. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Which is why I don't apologize for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, that's why. My experience is also mixed in terms of both my kids. One of them was you can look at their Enneagram type that they identify as now, and that was entirely who they were at three months old. Um, <laughs> and then the other child, uh, we have a story that we always tell that this was the place where their Enneagram type was very much unveiled. Mm. And so whether or not experience creates who you are or unveils who you are, I think is, is going to be one of those fun places to banter about. And obviously everybody's got differing experiences of that, but I love the idea that the Enneagram is wonderfully described as a strategy to be loved because we do push into our type and that is a primary, I imagine that each of the types want. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think the nature nurture thing, is always a good discussion because um, I can look back at my life and think, oh yeah, like I'm a three and no, no one who has ever known me, you would get zero dispute from anyone who's ever met right. me. Right. But when did I know that? It mm. wasn't until I became a parent 
Yeah. Um, and it was oh. when I like that's when I look back and go like, oh, like I became much more stereotypically a three after my daughters were born. Hmm. Yeah. That's that's when the the drive to succeed um, and some like I was always competitive. But when it went into overdrive is when I became a father. That's interesting. Talk about that for a minute. That's a good place for us to start before we get into your book and start um, quoting you back to you. What is your experience of uh, coming to the Enneagram, understanding who you are? How do you tell that story? Yeah. So in terms of coming to the Enneagram, I had the best introduction to the Enneagram that can almost be imagined. So a good friend, Josh Graves, who is a pastor in, uh, in Nashville, called me up one afternoon almost a decade ago and said, uh, hey, would you be interested in coming to a retreat in Connecticut with Ian Cron? And so we went up to uh, Connecticut for this weekend. And when I walked into the room, it was like um, being in a room with like the coolest people imaginable, hmm. right? It were, it were, they were all like poets and musicians and like some of them with, with I won't say their names, uh, names that you would recognize, right? If you spend time in uh, Christian space, particularly missional Christian space. And there was a woman there uh, named Suzanne Stabile. And she was there with her husband, Joe. And we had this great dinner the first night together and just sort of visited and, uh, the next morning, the only thing that was written on the schedule for the entire day, it just <laughs> said, it said Enneagram work. And, <laughs> and I, had, I had heard about the Enneagram. I kind of knew what it was. This was before it was well known as, as it is now. And uh, Ian gets up and uh, says, I'm going to turn the day over to Suzanne. I didn't realize, like, I was sitting right next to Joe. There's a bunch of us. And uh, Suzanne did her know your number content that day Mm. and so she does like she always does and when she got when she got to threes like this light had came on for me and it's like oh like that was like someone describing my life back to me now the beauty of that was that about five years prior to this my family had gone through a, a series of really tremendous setbacks like I got fired from a job when the bottom fell out of the economy um, we moved to California. That did not work well. This is, um, we had just had a series of failures over four or five years. And I was at this church in the middle of Texas that I absolutely loved, but we were really blessed if we had 70 or 80 people there on a Sunday morning. And even at that time, I was starting to do some things, doing some writing, doing some speaking. And when people would come and visit that church, you know, people would actually, like, who had heard me at a convention or a conference or someplace, they're like, oh, I, I've got to come and visit your church. I want to come visit your church. And I said, well, whenever you're driving between Austin and Dallas, if you stop in the middle, you'll find us. <laughs> and they would come in, and there was almost like this pulling in the parking lot, is this the right place sort of thing, uh-huh. and going in, because it was this just incredibly beautiful and lovely with great people church. Um, in the middle of central Texas, which I absolutely loved, but I would not have, I would have never gone there and never discovered the Enneagram if I hadn't gone through a series of pretty profound failures mm-hmm. and they were public failures. And so the gift of the Enneagram to me isn't that the Enneagram exists, it was that it came to me after those failures. Mm-hmm. Like 
after I hadn't lived up to all of the expectations that other people had of me, and he's going to be this, and he's going to do that, and he's going to, because I just wouldn't have received it. Um, The expectations and the success that I had experienced prior to that really would have walled me off from the Enneagram wisdom. And so that's what we spent that weekend talking about. I was with a company of people who um, I still am connected with today in some ways, and that weekend actually changed my life in in more than one way. So that's how I discovered the Enneagram. I've heard some teachers say that threes before failure, before a real failure in their lives, have a difficult time actually growing as a as a human soul. I'm, I don't know if I'm getting that kind of concept correct as I'm pitching it, but is that when you earmark that season in your life as this was a turning point for me? Do you is that really a this is Sean before and after? this this principal event um the failure is a before and after because like i had the world on a downhill pull before that i expected great things of myself i thought the world you know there are two kinds of people i realized there are folks who walk into a room and say aren't you glad i'm here and there are folks who walk into a room and say i'm so glad you're here Mm. and before failure i was the kind of person who walked into a room and said aren't you glad that i'm here yeah. Um, and after failure, I realized like, oh, I really can fail and one survive, still be loved, still have the friends that I mean, I gotta tell you guys, like people who now covet my attention were saying things behind my back that were absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so it gave me a way to hold all of that and say, like, okay, I know who my I know who my real friends are. Mm-hmm. I know how vaporous success and accolades are. And so I stopped I stopped seeking them um, in the same way that I did before. And the great gift of the Enneagram to me came. After I failed, because I don't think I would, I think if I hadn't failed already, I would have said that I was an eight. Sure. Mm, sure. I've heard that is a, a common mistype, especially for men with your profession. Right. Because I was like, let's get things done. Let's, but the way I, re- the way, what I went through emotionally in the midst of failure, um, an eight wouldn't do, hmm. um, wouldn't experience it the same way. And so I had, I had a lot of clarity around my number when I heard it for the first time because I had experienced all of it, you know, the, both the highs and the lows. Yeah. Um, I think we should jump right in, um, but let's talk shop about motive. And uh, TJ, why don't you start us off with, with what stood out to you in, in this book in terms of motive? Um. We've talked several, like you've brought up several times already the the importance of failure and, and how that shaped mm-hmm. your journey. And I, I was really, um, I was really struck by this line from the intro, that the beauty of failure, at least the beauty around my failures, was that in the midst of it, God revealed to me who my friends were, who my friends weren't, and who loved me for me, rather than what I did or how I performed. Uh and I like I know so many people that I want I, I want them to get that tattooed on their arm to where they can see <laughs> it every day. <laughs> like like this seems like it it's so important and something that that can only be learned 
through the experience. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts specifically about like what that line means for you. Yeah. I'm, so that is the great anxiety of Enneagram three. So if I, if I don't succeed or, and that's what creates the That's what creates the deceit that if I don't succeed or appear successful, then people won't love me, won't give me attention. So what failure does is it identifies the people for whom that is actually true because there is always going to be some cohort of people for whom that's actually true. And then it identifies the people in your life for whom that's not true. Like it doesn't change anything. So a friend of mine who is a six, and we talk about Enneagram stuff all the time, gave me an incredible word a few weeks ago. Um, And he says, you know, the, the real word in all of that is unnecessary. That so much of what we do in our personality space and not in our essence space, we do what we're doing it because like what I said before, a strategy to be loved, but it's really unnecessary. We'll be loved anyway. And so just imagine any amalgamation of actions that people take in order to be loved and that falling apart and really realizing that they're already loved anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredibly freeing. It doesn't go away. That temptation to believe that you have to do something in order to be loved um, never goes away. It never departs. Yeah. But at least you have a marker to say, do you remember that time where you failed and everybody knew that you failed <laughs> and you couldn't hide it? You couldn't deceive, like, you couldn't deceive people? Um, and guess what? This group of people loved you anyway. They're still going to be there for your next failure too. Mm. Right. That was something that stood out to me as you were defining how you come to the Enneagram, that it, it had kind of a toehold on the heart's message for a three, which you'll have to remind me. It's something to the extent of you are loved before anything you do. That's, that's the core. Yeah. You're, you're loved regardless of what you do or yeah. The, for, for myself, and maybe I need to just think through this, I don't know that my pursuit of being loved is at the core of my motive. I have a different kind of energy. I do want to be loved, but I don't know that my motive conforms real cleanly to that. Um, but, yeah, I, but I didn't want to sidetrack our conversation about this at all, but I was thinking about uh, like when you talked about like that as a basic description of the Enneagram, like mm-hmm. this is how we all figured out how to get, how to be loved. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if that's true for uh, not heart types. Mm. And I think that's a real valuable thing for a heart type to say, this is a great entry point for understanding what, what I can discover through, um, through this wisdom. And it, it may, it may well depend on what we mean when we talk about being loved as well. Ooh, so if yeah, you talk about that. Um, so a friend of mine who is an eight really struggles with the idea that, that he won't be betrayed, mm-hmm. right? So this is, at, this is at the center of what it is to be, a, to be an eight. But what is not being betrayed? It is being loved. It is uh, knowing sure. who, who is safe and knowing that you can be fully who you are. Um, so part of it is a theological commitment to me that, that if, we re, if I really believe that God is love, then at the core center, the essence of who I am is 
love as one who is created in God's image. And mm-hmm. so the best parts of me are driving to love and to be loved, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, that shows up in personality. Like when we come into the world, the thing that is the most pure and most honest about all of us is love and being loved. Mm-hmm. And I, my read of what the human project is, is all of our attempts to get back to center, which is to get back to love, to do everything out of this pu- a purity of love, to experience a purity of love, um, mm. that, it, that, everything, that everything we do is about being loved and providing love. So I may be wrong about that, but as I uncover my own motives and talk to more people, um, I've yet to find a person who isn't motivated by love and being loved. Um, and I, I may have clouded judgment on that, and I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, it works. But it's, it, seems, it seems to be pure of my experience. And it may not be for, for head types and for body types. I can say, as you, as you play that out, I see exactly how you're, you're playing that out. And the more that you, you spoke, just to go around the circle, that, that seemed to me to, to resonate more with me, that, that if I'm good enough as a one, then I'll be loved. If I'm helpful enough as a two, then I'll be loved. If I'm successful enough as a three, then I'll be loved. If I'm, if I'm unique enough, yeah. yeah. And you just go around, if I'm strong enough, if, I'm, if, I, if I create... How would you phrase that, TJ? The nine was where I, I was actually tripping up. Uh, uh, it's so long as I don't stir the pot. There it is. Yeah, then you'll then you'll get the affection that you crave. Yeah, I like that as an entry point for. Uh, there's so much. I have a I have a an enormous spreadsheet of these sorts of topics. <laughs> it's like you you name the topic and then this is how each of the types kind of go through and that's a great topic. Like how do we get the love that we crave? One of the things that you say early on in the book, building on the idea of motive, is, and I love this uh, as a question, what if the drive to accomplish for threes isn't something to dismiss, but something to harness? And this pushed into a question that I've always, I always come back to with the Enneagram. In terms of your basic motive, is it something that you are meant to embrace? Is it something you're meant to avoid? Or is there a balance there? What if the drive to accomplish isn't something to dismiss, but something to harness? And it seemed to me that you were pushing towards this is something to embrace. This is who you are at your core. Find out how it's expressed in healthy ways. And I was hoping you could comment on that. Yeah, so a couple of things there. One is that I, I don't think it's to be embraced or dismissed. I do think it's a tension to be managed. Hmm. For example, even when, even when writing the books, like I will tell my daughters, we're in the thick of the book writing phase right now. So dad's going to be up early in the morning and up late at night cranking out book stuff. I will go to a condo that I have access to in Galveston, which is about an hour away. And I spent three or four days there. Um, that's the thing that needed to happen. Um, that's not the way we live. And I told the told our girls, like when that's over, this is what we're going to do to regain balance because this is part of what I do in my life Mm. to love them, right? And so that's different for every person and you can certainly overdo it 
threes can become workaholics, but it's a tension to be balanced. But I've gotten to the point now where I can kind of name the tension ahead of time. This is the way it's going to be. And this is how we're going to return to equilibrium. But I do believe that within all of our numbers, there is a something beautiful that makes the world work, that makes the world work well. And to manage that tension well um, helps the people and serves people. I think the things about being a three that are native to me um, are largely helpful for the other people. And I say that specifically in this book, knowing that threes are going to read it because, and it may just be, maybe me being oversensitive. Um, threes get more crapped on than almost any other number for just being their number. And I want to say to people like, no, like your tendency to drive towards something, like someone needs that. Your desire to accomplish, your natural inbred tendency to cheerlead other people, to support others in their accomplishment. Like people need to do that and people need people on their side and so be that like embrace that yep. but keep it in tension with the other things of life and that's the beauty of the enneagram to me is that like i need people who are who are sixes who are going to ask me really tough questions for instance about uh, the next thing that i want to do um i want i need my wife who is a one who will not let me cut corners on things when I think, mm -hmm. well, we could just do it faster if we do it this way. And like, I would rather buy knives every four months than to not put <laughs> knives in their dishwasher. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Like, I was like, it's easier to put them in the dishwasher. She's like, you, you'll ruin the knives. And I'm like, in four months, we'll just go buy new knives. <laughs> like, I'm fine with that. Um, uh, so... Um, and so we like we and so it's not just like the world needs threes, right? But the, we all need one another mm. to make yeah. the world work well. And so I want threes to feel feel permission to say, you know, that part of me that wants to um, raise the money, build the business, write the book, beat my last score, whatever it is, uh, don't turn that off. And threes are often told to turn off those things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Our t we have been doing a series on the high side and low side of security. I, th I think there's a lot of room to talk about the high side and low side of motive in exactly that way. You can crash your plane going mm -hmm. to the low side of your motive. Absolutely. And it can be a terrible addiction. That doesn't mean there's not a glorious side here to embrace and target and and find your fullest self in. There's a I think there's a lot of room for work in talking about that for each of the types. So I was glad that you brought it up in the book. TJ, you got another uh, quote, quote we're talking about? Well, speaking of failure, uh, day thirty-five. That is is one day that you spend a lot of time talking about um, the experience of getting fired and and what that was like for you. And one thing that stuck out reading about that story is, like, I've been fired from a couple of jobs, and I don't really feel any shame about those experiences. I don't feel because I did a bad job and I should have been fired. And honestly, <laughs> looking back, I'm glad I got fired because I shouldn't have been doing those jobs anyway. Uh, <laughs> So I'm I'm curious, like, 
like what part of that is failure for you? Is it the fact that you got fired or is it the fact that you did the thing that got you fired? Um, the, is that I got fired. Okay. Right. So, um, and this is, I, you know, I, I don't know how well you guys know the inner world of denominations, but like to get fired, like everybody knows. Right. Oh yeah. Right. It's probably and, been a conversation for a while before you've ever heard about it. Right. Right. <laughs> everyone. Uh, so I'm not real quick. Everyone knows in the, the church or in the city or in the country, like <laughs> more people, like all of your colleagues know. Okay. Right. That you, that you got fired. Um, and it's one of those things where it just feels like, oh my gosh, like every person that I know from um, the lady who taught me in Sunday school when I was six <laughs> to my graduate school professors, there's no one in my world that doesn't know about this. Put it out in a um, memo? How does that get through the... Just, it just gets through the grapevine. I was raised in Churches of Christ, and if uh-huh. you know anything about Churches of Christ, <clears throat> um, one of the things you have to know is that every person is only about four people removed from every other person. Uh, okay. So Kevin Bacon is spread in this sucker. Yeah, uh, it's ti- <laughs> it's tighter than Kevin Bacon. Um, and so every, you know, it's one of those things just kind of like spreads through the grapevine. And there's a lot of shame associated with not being able to, and I came out of college as one of those people who er- so many people had such high hopes for. Oh, like this guy's going to do great things. He's going to, he's good at this. He's going to be. And um, I had never at that point in my life, TJ failed at anything. Mm-hmm. Like everything that I had done turned to gold to the point that I just assumed that if I were doing it, it were, it was going to be good. True. Right. I didn't even have to work at it. It didn't have like, and it's different in church world, right, than it is someplace else. If if you get fired from company A in downtown Houston, like, you can just apply for a job at company B. Your kids go to the same school. You don't have to move houses, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in ministry, especially in denominational context, like, you're probably going to have to move. Right. Like, your, your kids um, won't go to that church anymore. You'll lose your small group, your whole entire support system. Mm-hmm. And to keep it would be to like continue on in this system. Uh, like if you say, I'm going to keep going to that church, we're going to keep going to our small group to go there is almost to, to do that. It's almost to say like, Oh yeah, I agreed. They were right. Like, mm-hmm. and I felt like there was an injustice done. Sure. Um, looking back at it now, all these years, I can see more of their motivation, uh, but I still don't agree with it. They, they wouldn't find that surprising. I don't think, right. um, but yeah, I mean, that uh, sort of public, everyone you've ever known, knowing that you were handed an assignment and you could not fulfill it, hmm. was really devastating to me at 34 or 35 years old. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's really important to note that that is the failure for you as a three. I, I don't think that other types would have experienced the same kind of uh, would have had the same reaction to that, especially knowing that you disagreed with why you got fired. Right. Yeah. I think there are, there are, 
several other types that would have been like, fine, if you don't want me for something that's not right, I'm I'm out of here. That's that's fine by me. And they would have celebrated that. Mm. But but for you and, and for threes in general, the acts and the public nature of it, of just getting fired, that right. that is a failure to you. Yeah. And it also speaks to probably I don't know if uh, if all aggressive types would agree with it, but you know that that uh, part of aggressive types that really believes that they can shape the world mm-hmm. and that they are not shaped by the world. Right. Like when you get cut loose like that, that is a confession that you can't. Like there's no way to spin getting fired. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and and so I think you're right. Um, I took it. Pr- I took it pretty hard. Like crying in my bed at night. My wife worried about me. Um, but as a as a typical aggressive number, my response to that was, "I'll show you." Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, to to build on this, there's a part in the book where you use the phrase "the beauty of failure." Mm-hmm. in elevating this thing that you want to avoid. This is part of a list. It's something that TJ and I have not yet recorded on, but has been really important to us. It seems to me that all of the types have something they seek to avoid. Ones want to avoid being at fault. Twos want to avoid acknowledging their own needs. Fours want to avoid being ordinary, etc. And we're going to record on this someday. But I actually think this is the place that most of us begin going down the slippery slope to the low side of our motive. This is where a lot of our unhealth comes from is that we're not, that we're not able to somehow make sense of or embrace this thing that we're seeking to avoid. It actually is good for my heart and soul to name my desire to avoid being at fault right. and to not let it have power over me. And I was hoping you could speak to that. Yeah, and I think this is not just true of only uh, threes. You're exactly right, Jeff. Like um, the thing that we are in, trying to avoid is the very thing that we need to go into. Yeah, that that we need to press. Like we don't have to create failure, right? But it's the avoidance, the the um, steadfast avoidance of it that keeps us from growing. Because what we're what we will learn is that it didn't kill us. It didn't stop us from being loved, mm-hmm. um, that we were able to endure, that we were stronger than we thought we were. And so as long as we avoid the thing that we fear the most so effectively, we can't possibly grow because we just keep deploying the ideas that we have used so far in life to keep us from going and entering into those spaces. So when I talk about like the beauty of failure, I don't think that failure is objectively beautiful, right? Like, um, a failure to stop at a red light could result in some really horrendous things, right? right? Um, So failure in and of itself, but what we learn from stopping to resist the natural, failure is a part of life. And I write about this in the book that, that there are certain things that you can't know about you and know about other people and the nature of life until you encounter failure. And when I say embrace it, what I mean is to stop denying its reality as a lived experience. Mm. Mm. To not go out and like, oh, what can I fail at today? But like this cannot be avoided in the natural evolution and living of life. Yeah. You are, you are handed your one and only life. 
and your type is going to see those things that have power in affecting your type. And those hazards are just on your radar all the time. When you understand that those hazards don't have the power you think they do or that you're inclined to, to your type is telling you they have. So mm -hmm. for me, it's I really don't want to screw up anything. I specifically don't want to screw up my conversations with people that I love. I don't want them to think that I didn't uh, have that conversation well, um, that I, I made a misstep in how I talked about certain topics. That's huge for me. But it screws mm -hmm. up a lot of my conversations because I'm okay. always second-guessing myself. I'm, I enter a conversation, and then I'm like, did I do all that right? Did I think through that right? And it's just it's debilitating. And it seems to me that that would be the case with failure for three. It's like it's unless you give yourself permission. Yeah, to give yourself. Per so the way failure shows up is in truth telling. Right. So the idea of like threes are aggressive types. We're going to do stuff. But to tell the truth about what we do, what we didn't do and where we failed in the process of doing it. Um, for me, the worst thing. At, this is individual, this may not be a three thing. The worst thing for me in the world is to show up for something and be unprepared. Mm -hmm. For someone to say that I was unprepared like would be the most penetrating criticism you could possibly give me. You know, yeah, we had Sean Palmer come and he just was he just was unprepared. Yeah. Um the image that you wish to convey is some is the opposite. Right. And like some of that is about my own ego, right? But other parts of it are, man, if you ask me to do something, I want to honor the fact that you are asking me to do it and to do a good job for you. So when I talk about that idea of failure and embracing failure and entering into it, what I want threes and the people around them to know is like for a three, it feels like the, the end of the world is around at every failure. Hmm. And if you lose that belief that it's the end of the world, then you can face the world with honesty rather than deceit. Mm. Say so like, oh yeah, I didn't do that. I forgot to make that phone call. I didn't finish that. Like for me, the worst, th the worst feeling in the world is when I'm done giving a speech or a sermon someplace and feel like, oh man, if I'd have worked on that a little bit harder, it could have been really good or it could have been that much better. And guess what? Nobody else knows what else was on the page that I forgot. No one else mm -hmm. knows what I intended to do. And just to let it live, let whatever I produce live in the world as it is and know that you won't be rejected because it's not everything that you had hoped it would be or the response that you got the response that you'd hoped it would be. That leads me to, I, want, I really wanted to talk about intelligence there for a minute. And okay. On this front, there I really generally don't care about a lot of the debates in the Enneagram world. I think they're a lot of fun, and we should acknowledge that there's there's fantastic debates being had, and you should elevate these. The one that actually gets me, and I think we do need better language for and need to solidify something, is how to describe the underlying feeling for the heart triad. There, I have heard tell that there, uh, it, it was common to say the underlying feeling for, for twos, threes, and fours is shame. Mm -hmm. And I've mm -hmm. heard there are some folks who are pushing against that right now. And I was just hoping for your opinion on that. What, what, 
How would you describe yeah. the underlying feeling for twos, threes, and fours and how you experience it? That's, that's a really great question. And I think, you know, folks who are listening to your podcast are really interested in the Enneagram and are interested in doing deep dives. Like, I think we all know who've spent some time in the Enneagram world to know, to know that the Enneagram is one of the most contentious spaces on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> um, like from the language you use to who you heard it from to let's call it this. And that, I mean, it's, it really is. So feeling triad or the shame triad, I'm going to tell you the truth. I actually prefer to think of it for myself in terms of the shame triad because I deal with a lot of shame. Hmm. But uh, I get why other people don't necessarily feel that. Like, um, I don't think twos and fours feel that kind of shame. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily the same with threes. So, of course, obviously, in the right of in the pat in the process of writing this book, I talked to a lot of threes about what they experience. And I don't think, and this is where a place, a place where I think people can be much more, uh, it would be helpful for people much more sympathetic, empathetic toward threes. The shame around image is so intensely profound that it's not talked about enough because um, I, there are threes who want to go out and rule the world who pause to stop to do that because they don't like what they see in the mirror. Yeah. And like, I, I don't think I can adequately explain to people the shame that threes feel when they don't have the perfect image or the expected image. Hmm. Like I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I've got a good friend who we were talking and there are parts of her body that she doesn't like that have really been debilitating for her. And that's true for every female three that I've ever known. Hmm. And guess what? It's true of every male three that I've ever hmm. known. Sure. Um, the image thing is incredibly huge. And so that's why I actually lean towards shame. And that may just be the people that I know. Like when people talk about the like threes working out, <laughs> right? And like, like, that's a real thing that has to do with image. It's not just about health. Uh, so I don't know about everybody in the world. We are in a particular culture, in a particular context. Things arise in a particular way. But I, I actually don't know a three who is not concerned with his or her physical image every day, almost in a compulsive way. Is it the case that shame is a relational feeling? Like, if you were stuck on a desert island, would you yes. be able to feel shame? Yes. Okay. That's a yeah. good. That's and, good. And I think threes are, threes are like there is there is a way things ought to be, and ought to look, hmm. and a three on a desert island would still feel the same way as a three and standing in front of a thousand people Ooh. about that. Oh, that's good to know. You got any? Uh, what's your favorite quote from uh, the intelligence there portions of his book? Well, I was really struck by. Um, on day 27, you talk about uh, the day is called Who Cares? And you're talking about sharing your feelings and sort of the realization that you often don't share how you're really feeling because you don't care about how other people are really feeling. Yeah. And this was, this was one of the, yeah, this was one of the moments that 
that really stuck out to me that like th- this seemed like it might have been one of the hardest lessons mm-hmm. that you had to learn within this right uh, out of all of these these 40 days uh, and I was just curious um, I don't I don't know a lot of threes that would openly admit that that is a reality for them so there's a there's a company and I know uh, TJ you are particularly interested in coffee um, there's a new company that's called Coffee and Motivation. They have this mug that's, and I, I keep not ordering it and wanting to order it and not ordering it and wanting to order it. And it just says, um, no one cares, work harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, like, this is, like, I thought, oh, that's the, like, the most three mug that I've ever, ever because, so here's, here's how that works. Feelings get in the way of production, mm-hmm. not just my feelings, but your feelings. And even yeah. though a three is feeling your feelings when you're in the room with them, there comes a point where it's like, I'm not interested in your feelings if it's keeping us from being productive yeah, um, or if it's keeping me from being productive. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so my, <laughs> my wife and I uh, had, we were good friends before we started dating and she she had experience. We were in college where she broke up with her then boyfriend and I was coming over on a Friday night. We were going to grill burgers and hang out. We had interned for a church together. And this had just happened like the week before that. And I asked her, I said, well, do you want to talk about the breakup? And she started talking about it. And I said, I said, before you get too far, you need to know that I want the no tears version. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) And she's still married to you. <laughs> she's still she's still married. To you. <laughs> but like that so threes don't share their feelings because we assume that everybody else is thinking the same thing. That you're thinking they don't really want me they that everybody wants the no tears version. Mm-hmm. And so I've even said regrettably in a sermon to our community here uh, that if you want to be heard you really need to talk to another pastor on staff. If you, <laughs> if you want someone to fix it, come talk to me mm-hmm. because that's the way that I am wired. Yeah. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I'm probably not the most, my most pastoral moment. Cut in a down sermon. some of your emails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's part of the way that we're wired. And so some of it is getting over, the idea for, for threes, at least, is getting over the idea that, oh, there are people who do want to sit with you and to be with you in this moment and don't just want it to be over mm-hmm. um, for you to get through it. Because I do instinctively and compulsively tell me the data of what's going on and let's get on to the solve. Yeah. Um, because if you talk about your feelings too much, because I am in the feeling triad, I'm going to start to feel your feelings and I don't want to do that. Mm. Um, Cause there's stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah. There's dealing with those dealing with your feelings becomes overwhelming for me. And so it's hard being in a relationship with a three because one, when you're sharing your feelings there, I don't know that people get this about threes. Like they are feeling everything that you're feeling, whether they're showing it or not. And the reason that we cut it off so quickly or sooner than you want it to be cut off is because we can't take any more of it. Like our jar is full. There's a, there's a picture of this I want to draw. 
for folks in the feeling triad, right? So like twos are feeling other people's feelings, like taking that in and then wanting to exert it back to them, giving their mm-hmm. feelings back to other people. Fours, they're feeling everything in the world and it's like it's coming out of them and hitting a wall and just bouncing right back. <laughs> like it's almost like they can't get past their own feelings. Threes, like they, you, they are receiving your feelings, constantly feeling you, but because they are not a two or a four, um, and this goes into my wing theory, which we can get into another time, um, because they're not a two or a four, they want to do something with those feelings and they mm-hmm. don't know what to do with them. We want to yeah. do something with those feelings. And so if there's nothing to do but hear more of them, that becomes exhausting really quickly. Right. I'm going to jump ahead on on this because the coping style of how, how each of the types solve problems is often called coping style. Uh, Sean and I are going to share the, a coping style where we shut down our emotions and try and solve the problem. One, threes, and fives all come to problems in that manner mm-hmm. where I want to know what's right. And it's like, well, I'm getting all your emotion. I'm hearing you. So what's the right thing to do? That that language of I've, I've heard the problem. How do we hit a goal? Um, there's a there's a slight difference there. And, and when you use the term fix it, I was like, oh, it is fix it. But it's slightly different than the way I would say fix it. When hearing your family's problems, what goal comes up in your heart? There, there, there's some relational drama right. taking place, and you are internalizing. Your, you care about your daughter, and you really want or daughters, and want to move them from here to there. What is the goal f- in your mind for the people that you love? Yeah. So. And this is really complicated because, um, you know, my dad, my parents were raised in Mississippi um, during the civil rights movement as African-American. We have, as a family, worked really hard. My goal for my family is for them to have great lives, right? Mm. Um, And part of that means then I provide that great life, right? that I'm the, I'm kind of the engine that creates all of that. But a lot, you know, it's different every time. Sometimes it's like I, when my kids have a problem, I think to myself, this ain't really a problem. Like, let's go ahead and fix it and move on and like, you know, get over yourself, but it's for them to be happy. Right. So I, this is where the opt, the natural optimism of threes comes in is that, Every problem does have a solve somewhere and that we do want to not live in the negative too long because the negative is a hindrance to solving problems. So when they have a problem, like it really does, like uh, there is a ceiling on the emotionality that I can take that feels like I'm effective at solving that problem. Like if I get too emotionally invested, then I don't want to, uh, then I'm, I'm crippled in somehow, somehow in solving a problem. But th- this is an interesting thing. And this may be me or it may be all three is this place that I really want to explore some more is that when, when I share a problem with someone, I don't want to be heard. I want them to help me fix it. Hmm. Yeah. Like I didn't tell you it just to exchange the information. Yep. <laughs> like you get when, to the place where you're <laughs> successful again. Yeah, this is an exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is an obstacle that I want. I wouldn't have mentioned it to you 
unless I thought you could um, help me solve it. And I think threes naturally um, see like, oh, that must be what people want then from me too. They mentioned a problem, so they must want me to help them solve it. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to a place to feel understood. Right. I bet that's super interesting with uh, teenage girls at home. (laughs) (laughs) It is. They are not what I would describe as like super um, kind of emotional, at least in the sad emotions. And one is a seven. So Mm. she doesn't want to do sad emotions at all, ever, for anything. And uh, the other is a one who can get kind of really melancholy. Mm. And my wife's a one, and they are... They are just content to be melancholy together, and I let them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emotions are really hard. I think I write about this in the book. Emotions are really hard for threes. Um, my first session with John, who's my therapist, who I mentioned in the book, in the introduction in a couple of different places, like we're basically like me sitting, him asking like, so what do you want to accomplish? And me saying like, other people seem to be out here feeling things. <laughs> and uh, it's, it seems like I'm kind of missing out on something. Sure. Like the recent breakthrough, like I've told people many times, like if I were to write this book again, 40, 40 days, like it would be a completely different 40 days depending on where I was. Like it is news to me and news to most threes, a few things, that other people genuinely care about your feelings and that it's okay to make decisions based on how you feel. That is a world away from anything that a three conceives about the world. That you could say, like, I feel dismayed, uncomfortable, disappointed. And so because I feel this way, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Right. That is that is completely foreign to a way to the way a three sees the world. Right. Well, in turn. This, this is a good place to transition into stance. Um, one of the things that I loved in the book was oftentimes threes, sevens, and eights are called aggressive numbers, and you wanted to insert a new term, which I really resonated with, which is I feel like we're more assertive than aggressive. Or mm-hmm. you said I think we're more assertive than aggressive. That I think that's important. <laughs> um, that a aggression is often threatening or hostile. And you said, that's neither me nor any of the threes I know. I am, however, assertive in the way I meet the world. Right. And I was hoping that you could play that out. Is it the case that assertive is just a better number for the triad, or is it just the case that you know threes sh- ought to uh, be labeled as such? Well, I know particularly for threes, you know, threes want to win, and one of the things that they want to win are the people. Um, threes want to be leaders, but they want to be followed more than they want to be want to be leaders. Where eights, for instance, like they're just going to lead, and it's like you will either get out of their way or you won't. And so I'm an aggressive personality in that if there are certain things that need to be done in a given day uh, for a certain project, like I'm going to get those things, and I'm going to be the engine of getting those things. And I actually get frustrated when I'm not the engine of those things and they are happening too slowly or too inefficiently for what I would prefer. And so that's why I like the idea of assertive rather than aggressive. And it may just be 
It may just be semantics for some folks, but aggressive to me is much more violent in its term. So what I want to say is like threes are, and especially if you're married to a three, you work with a three, like they are going to assert themselves into things that matter for them. Um, And we actually kind of withdraw ourselves from things that don't really matter all that much or don't have the right payoff. And so that's not uh, trying to be over and against, which is what aggression sounds like, but like, let's get this done and let's move forward. And this is the goal and we're driving toward the goal. And so someone interestingly this last week asked me the difference between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. And uh, we all talked about that when we did the uh, episodes around the last dance, like LeBron James actually is beloved by his teammates and Michael Jordan isn't. And to me, that's the difference between aggressive and assertive. Assertive people say, this is what we have agreed on. Like in, when I'm in meetings, when I'm leading a project, I want more voices. But once we have decided what to do, let's get about doing it. And not uh, that seems that I like aggre- I like assertive more than aggressive for that reason. I think it serves people better. I think many people, but it's it's instructive, right? Many people have felt run over by assertive numbers, aggressive numbers, sevens, eights, and threes, and so they call them aggressive people. And then I think sometimes what happens with the Enneagram is when we know it and we know what our type is, we then begin to live into that type a little bit more than we ought to. We live into the description of that type as an excuse rather than an explanation. And I'm not an, I am just, most people who know me would not describe me as an aggressive person. They would describe me as a peaceful and an ironic person uh, by and large. But they would say, is Sean assertive? They would say when he decides that he wants something or he's going to do something, that's what's going to happen without harm to other people. Would would the language of you're aggressive about getting the attention you want work for you? Or is it still, no, it's it's more that I'm asserting myself? I wouldn't like the, uh, the language of he's aggressive about getting the attention he wants, but that's more about getting the attention he wants and me wanting to <laughs> deny that, that that's a reality. But yeah, um... Like when I, when I was 20 years old and decided that what I wanted as part of my life was to be able to write books, um, it was to be helpful, but it was also to get attention. And I have been assertive about that, but not overly aggressive. Like when things weren't going to happen in a part of my career that I wanted them to be, I didn't try to force them open um, like a can without a can opener. And I was just going to beat it until it popped open. And so, it, again, that may be semantics, and different people may describe that in different ways, but for me, it just never worked that way. TG, you got a stance quote? Well, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's funny that we both noticed this, uh, because I, I actually reacted to this in the opposite way. Uh, like, as, as a withdrawn type, I experience all of the threes in my life, like I have no problem with the word aggressive describing the threes in my life Mm. because like that, that sort of drive, that energy that to me comes across as, as more than I'm ready for. Oh, and, and I, I would agree that it's, it's like, there's, yeah, it's this easily could just be a semantics debate. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that, like that that was something that stuck out to me as well. Um, 
So, and it's part of it, like threes are aggressive to feel important. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's different than just to be noticed. Like importance right. can be about making an impact in the world and helping people. I mean, it's super layered um, where say like a seven might be aggressive to fix injustice. I mean, an eight might be aggressive to fix injustices um, and a seven might be aggressive for more experiences or positivity. Mm-hmm. Um, for threes, it very is, it's very much about feeling important and mm-hmm. that shifts and changes in different places. Um, in terms of aggressive, um, I am willing to stipulate that I prefer assertive rather than aggressive because it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> See, and that's what some, I thought right away. Some, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, this is about image. <laughs> God, that's funny. So uh, I, I, I'll, I'll live with that one. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take that one. <laughs> TJ, let's talk about the, the shadow side with yeah. Sean Ferment. Um, do you have any, any shadow quotes that st- stuck out to you? So from from day one, uh, something that that I read into this right away is that it sounded like you were saying, I am the best self-deprecator. Like, like, like it was like you were bragging about being a show off. (laughs) You know, like, like I, I'm, I'm really good at like listing accomplishments and how accomplishments are not something to be listed right away, you know? And it was just like, that stuck out to me and it made me laugh. And like only a three could have presented that that way. Um, yeah. I'm curious. Was that intentional? I'm the best at self deprecating. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I am not the best at self deprecating. Um, that's so funny. Uh, so showing off, like that entry in day one is about one of the people I find actually most uh, fascinating in American culture, which is Kim Kardashian. Mm-hmm. And what I was trying to get to is like, yeah, like threes love to show off. Like it is, it is like the milk we drink, um, the water we swim in. So I don't know. I don't think I was. I don't. I don't think I was trying to say I'm the best at being self-deprecating. I was trying from the very beginning of the book. This is why it's entry number one to say like, oh, if you if you have a three in your life, this is their central struggle. Hmm. Yeah, and it occurs in virtually every conversation that they have. Like I don't think someone who's not a three knows how difficult it is for someone who's a three to hear a conversation partner talk about, Oh, this is going on at work with me and it's really good. Or this is what I'm, uh, this is what my time was in the last race and not to rebut that with, yeah, but here's the thing that I did in that same arena or something like it. Yeah. This is like, so I had a good friend. He's such a great guy. He's a marathoner. And one of his marathons was a training marathon for the big one that he was getting ready for. And so he knew going in that uh, he wasn't going to have the time, a time that was going to be impressive because he was using it as a training run. So all of these apps and watches and different things that we have nowadays to keep track of that and the monitor, you can sign up when you run a race to notify different people um, when you're at mile 10 or mile 15 or however it was. He turned all of that off 
because people weren't going to be impressed by it. Right. (laughs) And so what I was trying to do is from the get go, say to threes and the people who know and love threes, like I totally get this. Like you are not alone, which is a big deal for threes. Yeah. And this is part of the unhealthy part of you that is on display all the time. Yeah. I hate being self-deprecating. For me, being self-deprecating is a communicative tool that I use in speeches and sermons to connect with people emotionally, but not something that I do natively. Yeah. Um, uh, because that's the last thing that I want to do. That's a great distinction. The quote that stuck out to me in terms of there's there's lots in here about um, self development and obviously that's a target of this this book series but um, I love the idea that image may not be the real target for a three that this is actually just something that we often settle for um, and mm-hmm. so you write through the years I've tried to explain uh, to your wife how my concern about image really isn't about having a great image for image sake, or even about me making a favorable impression, it's because I want to honor people I am with by putting my best foot forward. I want to honor them by honoring what they honor. That explanation is partially true, which means it's also partially false. And I love that (laughs) distinction on the backside, but I was hoping that you could talk about what's a better target for the heart of a three than than just the, the, the image. Yeah. Um, so the temptation for a three is that if you love the image, then you will love me. If you accept the image, then you'll accept me. And so the better target is authenticity. It's something that we can learn from our four wing to show up in a space and to be completely ourselves, um, or at least to be more of ourselves than we are used to being. So I would say for my friends out there who are threes, like the work for us is to know that the image really is unnecessary in reaching the goals that we think we want to reach, um, that we are loved and whole without that image. And so what I was trying to do with that, with that entry and with several others in the book is just to give permission to let go of the idea that the appearance of what the group expects is the avenue to receptivity and love in that particular group. Mm. The the other big quote on exactly that front ended up being about find just meditations on finding your value in something else are all over your book and I I found them mm-hmm. very helpful in terms of engaging the heart of a three, one of the uh, reflections you say, in seventh grade, a girl named Jessica told me the reason I wasn't invited to another classmate's birthday party when most of the class had been invited. And she said, you ain't nobody. Threes find our worth in the praise of others, their esteem. We want to be invited to the party. Our strategy for finding that worth is adding value or performing well. When we aren't, it's almost like we shouldn't be alive. The times I feel most worthless, I'm tempted to remind people of my worth. Why else would they have me around? I want to be nobody. And exposing that as your shadow, exposing that as here's here's a a misstep, is something I imagine a lot of threes don't know. 
that this is actually part of the uh, the darker side of the personality. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but I was hoping you could comment. Yeah, so I think, um, however we got the message, right, for threes, the idea is that we have to earn our place at the table, um, our invitation to the party, and the way that we earn our invitation to the party is being enough of whatever who is throwing the party wants us to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty elusive target. I think every three that I know knows instinctively that that's an elusive target. But at the same time, we can't help ourselves by trying to aim at it. And what I'm trying to do is free people from the idea that there is inherent worth in meeting other people's expectations of who you need to be in order to be at the party. That that is, like I said earlier, unnecessary. Hmm. That you are whole and loved just as you are. And that there is ample evidence to that fact that you are whole and loved. And so those kind of experiences happen to everybody. Everyone's rejected somewhere along the line. But it seems to me that in my experience that threes carry that and hold that in a much deeper and profound way. It's a much deeper wound than it is for other number. And it is a wound. And I think one of the ways that we can start to experience healing is to understand that it is a wound um, and not an event. And threes want to tell, we want to tell ourselves that these things that happened are events from our past hmm. and not wounds to our heart. And once you flip the switch and go like, oh no, that wasn't just something that happened. If that was a wound that I have been trying to fix because I'm an aggressive person, um, that's when you can begin to deal with them forthrightly and to carry them well. That was a question I didn't ask earlier, but shame as being a past experience, hmm. that the heart triad, twos, threes, and fours, their shame is in the past. And the move for the three, I assume, is then to aggressively... Shape the future. Yeah, and the, and there's your stance, mm -hmm. um, and the the orientation of time is there. It's I've had these past experiences, or in some of your writings, you've even colored. Uh, here is my family's past experiences, and the move then is in the future. It's not going to be that way. I'm going to show right. up prepared. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to get the. I'm going to get to the place that I want to be, and that's how you engage. Um, well, I assume that's how you are getting the things that you, you want most. Yeah, that is. And this is one of those places where I think one, so much more work needs to be done on the Enneagram and race, mm. particularly in the context of, of American history, um, that for African-Americans like myself, like the future is much more promising than the past, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the idea of being able to shape the future but also um, that simple idea that we are moving towards something. I'm not a believer actually in progress in the same way that some people are, that things are inherently better now than they were 60 or 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I do believe that I, right now I have a chance to shape the future. I can't shape the past at all. Right. And so, I mean, all of that is part of the, in play when I think about how I formed a personality. And I know that's not universal to everyone who identifies as a three, but it's definitely part of who I am and definitely part of what we're all trying to do is that there is a shame in the past. And what shame does, the message that we internalize with shame is that thing that happened in the past 
I will never let that happen again. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think that's core to the, the, that obviously is really important in general statement. That strikes me as very core to the threes that I know. Mm -hmm. That I will never let that happen again angle on their work, on uh, how they engage their families, seems to me to be um, worth naming. Yeah. Like that thing that happened won't happen again because I can control my future. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, um, you said at one point something along the lines of working to remember events that haven't happened yet and like thinking about orchestrating your future with an eye to how that will look beyond those events. Right. And like, right. like shaping, shaping the world in such a way that the story that your future tells will be mm-hmm. something worthwhile. And that was a, a beautiful way to conceive of the three's orientation to the future. Yeah. Yeah. The, or the orientation to time is actually pretty significant for threes. Um, one of the things that when I counsel people, when we do pastoral care, especially people who are going through a difficult time, like divorce or something along those lines. I can't count the times how that I've told to people, one of the things you need to think about is that at some point in your life, this will be a story that you tell. Mm-hmm. And when you tell that story, what story do you want to be able to tell yeah. and behave now in a way that allows you to tell the story that you want to be able to tell? What is the story you want to be able to tell about your ex-wife or your ex-husband or how you handle the finances or how you handle children? You know, when you're in a really difficult time, what story do you want to be able to tell about how you behave now? And then just go and behave now according to that story um, that you want to be able to tell. And I don't know that other numbers don't do that. Um, It's counsel that I've given to a lot of numbers. It is a feeling repressed way to deal with the world. I accept. <laughs> so that's a stance thing. So, uh, but I, I, I do think that's actually one of the gifts that threes offer. And I, yeah. there's at least one entry in the book about that. Like, wait, one of the great things that threes do is that they help other people think about the future in right. ways that are realistic and right. helpful. Right. I do um, not think about the future that way. <laughs> yeah. And I love that threes draw that out of me. The thing I heard all sorts of three language there in terms of on one side in the future, you don't want to be ashamed of what you're doing right now. And mm-hmm. you want your image in the future to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. But even but on the healthy side, on the on the on the solid advice side, there is something about saying you want to live an excellent life. And that's always what I get most from threes is the there is something about a, achieving things that are worth achieving that have excellence that have real lasting value that are worthy of your the commitment of your of your heart and time that I gain from threes who who can pitch the future in an attractive way where I'm like, yep, I'm all in. Give it to me. That is the excellent future that I desire. Right. And um and there's a chapter in here, there's a chapter, an entry in the book about that being a gift for threes. Mm-hmm. So my wife is a one like Jeff is, and it, we were married 15 years 
before. <laughs> it's funny. I think orientation of time is so incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Um, yep. And it was we were fifth. We were married fifteen years before I asked the question. Okay, honey, um, if we are going to leave for a trip at two o'clock, <laughs> at what time do you consider us late <laughs> leaving? <laughs> And you know what she said? 2.30. Now, sure. I'm a three, uh-huh. and I have a particular thing about orientation of time and uh, goals. So when I say we're going to leave at two, to me, that's like wheels rolling at two. Yeah. Right? And so I'm going to work toward a goal of leaving at two. Like, everything will then be oriented. Packing so we can leave at two. Gassing the car up so we can leave at two. Yeah. Washing the car so we can leave at two. She doesn't think that way at all because we're not late until 2.30, yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Because she is so oriented to the present moment. Yeah. Uh, seven friend of mine is, uh, his answer would be 145. <laughs> <laughs> and my answer would be 4, 4.30. That's late. <laughs> I can't speak for your wife, but I'll tell you what goes on in my mind on this front. It's, it's that your future problem solving. And I'm like, that's great. Uh, that's not the problem at hand. The, pro- the things that need to be done well are right here and right now. Let's do them first. There's 20 things we need to do between here and there. This is also why I don't plug in my cell phone to have it fully charged for the two o'clock departure time, which I have heard. This is the new tell for me if you're one. It's not the inner critic. It's are you really bad about charging up your cell phone? That is so on point. Because I got 20%, and that means I'm fine. I cannot tell you the amount of times that she has walked in, and she's like, my phone's at 10%, right? My phone has never been at 10% exactly. ever in the history of the world. Her, like if it, <laughs> my, my wife's car always has gas. That's, Same a, story that's wise. That's okay. Wise. Last uh, topic to hit is uh, just the road to health. And um, one of the quotes that I thought was really worth landing on was the one that occurred early on. And it's one that I have really, uh, been wanting to explore more, and it came out in your language real well. And you said, who you are, your core, is inherently good and made in the image of God. You don't need to feel badly or apologize for the natural gifts that are inherent to who God created you to be. Spiritual formation, then, is not about taking on a new persona. It's about releasing the false parts of your personality. The bones are good. You don't need to tear down your house. Owning this is some of the Enneagram literature that I despise most ends up going directly against this idea mm. in saying that your type is bad. So let's right. figure out how to eliminate this element of your personality. And I think that's exactly the wrong move. Naming that you reflect the living God in a fantastic, worthy, beautiful way and finding that and pushing all your chips in on that, I think is a, 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 one of the necessary elements of a healthy life. Right. So, of course, I'm a pastor, and so I have a, I have a Jesus lens that gets applied to everything, whether I'm trying to or not. So for me, this is really a, um, a body kind of issue that, like, man, We need ones, we need nines, we need eights, we need sevens, we need threes. 
and we need them to be what they are. Yep. All of us need to be what we are in order for the world to function. And the times that I regret most about my life or when I've been a part of a group or I've been on a project and I didn't show up as myself. Hmm. And so all those things that are native to who threes are, that are good, that drive, that purpose, that goal orientation, that future orientation of time, the cheerleading, all those things that we've talked about. Like when I show up and I try to fundamentally be something else. That's not about, well, everybody at this meeting is going to be wearing a tie, so I should wear a tie. Like those are kind of image things. But when I'm fundamentally out of sorts with who God created me to be, that's when I have the most regrets. And so what I want to say to threes, and I hope the other um, writers in the series do the same thing for their number, is like those good parts of you, like, man, that's not by accident or incident. Like show up fully who you are, because that's who we need you to be. So um, I work with an eight, and man, his eight is so frustrating sometimes, <laughs> right? But like, man, I wouldn't want him to be any other way. Mm-hmm. Like, we need him to be exactly how he's wired to be. And we need me to be a three, because... He's going to preach one weekend and say X, Y, and Z, and certain people are going to get fired up about that, and I'm going to get up there the next weekend as a three, and I'm going to say A, B, and C, and our whole church needs both of those, mm-hmm. right? Our church needs to hear both of those. So, yeah, I want to give people freedom to not feel bad about their number and to say, like, I'm a three, and I'm showing up as a three every day, all day, in the healthiest way I can. Mm-hmm. Final thoughts on that, Teach? Uh, something that stuck out to me was, like, in the act of getting healthy, sometimes you lose the people who liked your unhealth. Right. Uh, you talked about this in, in Day 39, and I was thinking about... Um, I used to smoke, and uh, one of the things that, that is very, very common in the smoker community is that, that when people stop smoking, you lose friends. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and thinking about that in such a way, like it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that like, it's okay for my friends to stop smoking (laughs) because they're getting healthier. Like they're developing better habits. And unfortunately that sometimes means that I'm going to lose a little bit of relationship. And especially when you're talking about becoming a healthier person and, and people who rely on your unhealth to give them something that they want. Like threes in particular need to be okay with losing relationship with people who want them to be unhealthy. Right. Like that really, that, yeah. Yeah. Another one of those things that I think everyone needs to learn. Yeah. So one of the realities of life is that we train people how to treat us. Yeah. And when you begin to make a big shift in how you move through the world, there are some folks who's like, oh no, like I really like that unhealthy version of TJ Mm -hmm. or Jeff or Sean, and I don't like the new version. And to be fair to them, you're not who they were friends with anymore. Right. Right. And we 
often stay in unhealthy patterns to keep relationships that are based on those unhealthy patterns. Right. And we're going to have to get a lot more comfortable as people. And I've had to do this very recently with some people who are extraordinarily close to me to say like, oh, what I, what I was to you was unhealthy for me. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that anymore. And so if you can't go with me into a place of health, I will lament the loss of your friendship. I'll lament the loss of your relationship. But that is a lesser loss than lamenting the loss of myself for your sake. Mm. And I don't want people to be naive about that. If you're at a company that really, if you're a three out there listening and your company really counts on you being an unhealthy three, Mm. when you cease being an unhealthy three, uh, you're going to enter into some tension and some complication with your company. Yeah. Yeah. With your spouse who is committed to you being an unhealthy three, Mm -hmm. to you being an unhealthy one or an unhealthy nine, whatever it is. And it may be a simple renegotiation because all, all relationships are negotiated, whether we like to use that terminology or not. Like, this is how we're going to function together. We all come right. to terms with that. It may take some renegotiation. And in some respects, it's going to take some severe renegotiation. So I had a very good friend who three years ago went through a divorce. And when I asked him why it was that he and his ex-wife were experiencing this, um, he told me, and this is his side of the story, that he had decided to no longer be unhealthy in certain ways, and she was dependent upon him being unhealthy in those certain ways. Mm-hmm. But health is health, and beauty is beauty, and we're always better healthy than not healthy. Right. The This is a good place to land, because one of the big things... Four threes, it seems to me in terms of what do I need to cultivate most in my heart and soul is truthfulness and uh, and that authenticity of finding your value in places that are not just the ever-changing opinions of the the tribe. Knowing yourself, being honest with that, engaging the world from that that foundation, that core foundation of strength. And the, the, those are people that are alive my wife described it like this and I just love this because we were talking about just some interactions for me very personally. She says, it's like, she said, it's, it was like you were walking down the street with this group of people and you took a turn toward health and wholeness and they didn't go with you. Yeah. And in those very first steps, you're scared to death because you're alone and not only alone, but you're no longer with these people who have sometimes been with you 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. But what you find as you keep walking is that there are a bunch of other people who have made that same turn and started walking down this road as well yeah. and are more than willing to walk alongside of you. Mm. So um, that's my prayer for it. Just, not just for me, but for everybody. Like To be courageous enough to take the turn toward health and trust that there are some friends and new compadres along that path who are more than eager to join you. Mm-hmm. That's a good place to land. Dear listener, hey, it would mean the world to us if you pause, take two seconds, write us a brief review, and give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. 
But the best thing you can do is share this episode with a three that you love. Who needs to buy a book? From the great Sean Palmer. We are so thrilled that you have taken time to be with us, Sean, um, and are super excited for any future conversations that we are going to have. Well, Sean, where can people find you? Uh, the easiest place to find me is on Facebook. I'm at Sean Isaac Palmer, um, or on Twitter, just at Sean Palmer, S-E-A-N-P-A-L-M-E-R. And uh, you will find all the things if you go to one of those places. So um, I look forward to, uh, to seeing you there. Bing. Hey, TJ, you got anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's been a blast. I've had a lot of fun reading this book. It's been so much fun talking to you again and can't wait for the next time. Enjoyed it. I agree. My, uh, this was said off camera, but I would love to do a final pitch for the book that I read all sorts of books and am seldom as moved by the quality as, as I thought your book was. And so I'm really excited for this to be helpful in the lives of lots of people that I love as well as mine. Thank you. Thank you. Well, he's Sean Palmer. He's a tower of excellence. And he's T.J. Wilson, and he's officially awesome, and I'm Jeff Cook, and who you aren't is an interesting. Push into who you are, because that's where the gold is. Burning, burning.